Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. To kick off 2014, Lighthouse Executive Director Michael Henry welcomed all newbies and those returning to the fold with an overview of Lighthouse's mission and upcoming programs. Attendees then enjoyed a reading by faculty members Richard Froud, Paula Younger, and Victoria Hanley. My name is Dan. Uh, I'm the creative curator. I'm also the uh, volunteer. What does that mean? It means so many things. So we have three faculty members reading tonight. The first one up is uh, Victoria Hanley. Award-winning author Victoria Hanley loves to nurture emerging writers. Her fantasy novels are published in 13 languages, and she's also the author of books on how to write. Victoria teaches writing the young adult or middle grade novel at Lighthouse. Let's welcome Victoria. So I am going to read from Wild Inc., Success Secrets, to writing and publishing in the young adult market. And the chapter I'm going to read from is relevant to all writers, not just those who are interested in getting involved with YA. So this chapter is called Obstacles and Demons. (laughs) And the first obstacle is lack of time. And uh, I'm going to skip that one. And the second obstacle is rejection, which I'm also going to skip. (laughs) Which brings us straight to obstacle number three, doubt and fear. (laughs) So (laughs) here we go. Who has not felt squashed? by self-doubt. Anyone? (laughs) So I don't know what form your self-doubt takes. For some, it's a vague paralysis that creeps over the mind. And for others, it may be articulated in nauseating detail. Whatever the form, self-doubt is usually a variation of, I can't do this, or there's no point. Where do all those doubts come from? Well, feeling doubt while you're in the process of creating makes a peculiar kind of sense. After all, knowledge brings confidence. But creativity is all about touching the unknown. Knowledge asserts what's so, and imagination, on the other hand, according to dictionary.com, is the act or power of forming mental images of what is not present, the act or power of creating new ideas. The act or power of creating. That sounds good. Images of what is not present. That's a bit more iffy. And it's, in within, it's within that iffy zone that we find opportunities to create. And in that same zone, we've got doubt thumping its chest. 
and uttering challenges. So I'm going to uh, tell you a very short true story that I think is relevant, I hope anyway. When I was 17, I went to college at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I had lived the previous six years in humid Wisconsin at sea level. Santa Fe sits at 7,000 feet in the desert dust, makes sunsets that fill the sky, not only in the west, but around the compass. And behind the college, there's a small mountain named Monte Sol, part of the Song de Cristo range. And it's uninhabited. I wasn't the only one dazzled by the New Mexico sunsets, and a group of us decided it would be a great experience to see the sunset from the summit of Monte Sol. So one bright afternoon, several classmates and I set out, climbing the steep makeshift trail to the top. And the sunset was even more resplendent than we'd imagined it would be, a blend of red, orange, and gold. And as the last rays went down, it suddenly occurred to us that the result of sunset (laughs) is night. And uh, we still needed to get down the mountain. Uh, No flashlights among us. So in fading twilight, we found the dirt path. And this was, uh, by the way, not Wisconsin dirt, which holds together. This was dry, sandy dirt that slips away, especially when the path is steep. So uh, we scrambled along, clutching at scrubby pignon trees while night thickened. And soon we couldn't see the trail. Couldn't even see our own feet in the dark. And after a long, bumbling trek and many scratches and scrapes, we did make it back to the college grounds. To me, that journey up and down the mountain is analogous to what happens when undertaking a new writing venture. Imagination inspires us and we act. And it's easy in the beginning to be so struck by a glowing vision that the thought of darkness is forgotten. So we begin boldly, climbing high on the strength of the vision, and then uh, we encounter darkness. And we have to stumble through it. So as artists, we would not want to miss out on the darkness altogether, any more than we would want to skip the light of day. Louis Armstrong, child of poverty and prostitution, wrote, What a Wonderful World. He sang of the bright, blessed day, and he also sang of the dark, sacred night. Why did Armstrong call the dark sacred? Maybe he was referring to the way that heartache and hard times can deepen creative urges, or maybe he was talking about the unknown. That unknown is mysterious. It resists control and cannot be contained by formula, refuses to be ruled. By its nature, it does not engender confidence but it also bestows the sort of wisdom that guides our footsteps when knowledge cannot help. Imagination is not limited by what is present, leading the way instead to what is not. And this has profound implications for writers who get to go into the unknown whenever we start a new book. I don't have anything against knowledge or flashlights. But when knowledge takes over, we run the risk of getting set in our ways and trapped in the territory we have already explored. When stumbling through darkness, unable to see, it's tempting to try to use knowledge 
when imagination is what's called for. And it's especially tempting when the darkness is deep. At that point, it's hard to believe that what we don't yet know will help us the most. Anyone who takes excursions through the unknown is likely to encounter doubt, fear, isolation, frustration, and more. And sometimes they rise up with great fervor (laughs) and make things very difficult. But this is natural and normal and to be expected. Okay, so I'm going to read one more obstacle. This is meant to be. Uh, There's a lot of talk floating around about fulfilling your dreams and following your path. And sometimes the implication seems to be that if you're following your path to fulfill your dreams, obstacles will melt. Or the whole experience will be so joyous, any drudgery will transform into bliss. (laughs) Along those lines, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I was planning to write a book, but I guess it wasn't meant to be. To which I think, huh? (laughs) If it's meant to be, will the book write itself? (laughs) How many people do you know who will go that extra mile for their job and be amazingly patient with all the bumps in the road on the job? And then tell themselves a dream should just fall into place or it isn't meant to be. Art does not have a special exemption from sweat. Images of writers as artists whose work flows effortlessly or not at all are false. Equally untrue is the idea that artists must live for a while in the gutter dressed in elegant black. (laughs) And then, when they've suffered enough, their difficulties will magically resolve. If you were first starting out at a gym and someone told you getting in shape is going to feel fabulous from the get-go and burning fat is going to be a blast every day, you'd probably know that that was a lie. Certainly after soreness kicked in, you'd know, or when you were huffing and puffing, building up an oxygen debt. And plumbing the depths of yourself coming up with a story that actually hangs together, writing that awful first draft and going it over it again and again, that takes work, intensive work. It ain't easy. So if you are struggling to get your book written, there is nothing inherently wrong with you. Go to it. Sweat it out. Huff and puff. Keep going. Thank you, Victoria. That was awesome. Reminds me of the quote, uh, Victor Frankl, what is to give light must endure burning. Think about that. You just got curated. All right. (laughs) 
Richard Froud is up next. Richard Froud was born in London, raised in Bristol, and now lives in Denver. He is, amongst other things, a formal... Uh, former Royal Air Force Cadet, Jockeys Club doorman, high school debate judge, Hollywood studio removal man, <laughs> computer lab technician, day laborer, youth cricketer, and short order chef. He is the author of a book of nonfiction, Fabric, a book of poetry, The Passenger, and a volume of translations of Charles Baudelaire, Tarnished Mirrors. His writing can also be found in over 50 journals in print and online, including Conjunctions, Witness, Tarpaulin Sky, Bombay Gin, Diagram, and many more. He teaches classes in memoir and experimental hybrid forms here at Lighthouse. Let's welcome Richard. Thank you, Dan. So, hi, everyone. I, uh, I had a real trouble figuring out what I should read this evening. Um, I've been kind of locked in to writing in this long essay form that ends up being like five to 10,000 words, which is way too long to, uh, to read in 10 minutes. So, um, and they just don't excerpt very well. So, um, with that in mind, I've excerpted one. And... Uh, <laughs> tried to uh, tie a few things uh, together by, by a theme. Uh, it's from an essay I wrote about exile, loneliness, and nostalgia, which, as I say that, I'm aware that sounds like a barrel of laughs. But, um, but uh, you know, I tried to pick out some of the more light-hearted moments. Um, so it's, this is from an essay called The Southland, and... Um, the excerpts, and I, you know, I forgot that I gave that bio to Dan that had listed some of my previous occupations. Um, because they're like excerpts on a theme of jobs I had the year I lived in Los Angeles, which was a terrible year. And I apologize to some of the uh, students I had in my experimental forms class last semester because they've heard a couple of these already. Um, so uh, this is from the Southland. There is definitely a subway system in Los Angeles. I wrote it to Hollywood and Highland where I emerged from the underground and waited on the walk of fame for the city bus. Across the street, the round head and slight shoulders of a plastic tyrannosaur peeked over the fake brick wall of Ripley's Believe It or Not. I don't remember whose stars adorned the bus stop pavement, recently hosed clean of the previous night's vomit. Even, even before 8am, there were scores of tourists. I passed through them, the way a doomed airplane meets the lowest clouds. <laughs> the, the bus cost only a quarter. If a seat was somehow open, then it was almost certainly damp. We moved west, down Hollywood Boulevard, turned south towards sunset, past the Hollywood High School, then right onto the strip. I walked the last couple of blocks, then took the ramp to the sunken entrance of the hotel. When I got there, the doorman would not let me in. They could not believe I might be an employee. When a manager was summoned, he showed me to a back entrance that was for the invisible staff. Housekeeping, custodial, me. <laughs> We're like Willy Wonka here, he said. Guests don't want to see the help. He turned to really look at me for the first time, and at this point in the 21st century, added that my sideburns were too long and I needed a haircut. He showed me to my office, a concrete basement corridor with a collapsible table and a stack of employee tax documents. And just like that, I had entered the Los Angeles leisure sector. 
I can't say for sure if it was the moist fabric of the bus seats, the persistent stench of urine in the subway stairwells, or the casual racism of my superiors at the hotel, most likely a compound of all three. In any case, I lasted only three days. My first steady job was at a post-production suite in North Hollywood. I arrived at 10 a.m. and left at 6. In the hours between, I was supposed to catalogue raw footage from various reality television shows, although in truth, I did everything I could to avoid actual work. I took long, solitary lunches at the nearby China chef Wang, who provided a three-course meal with tea for only three ninety-nine. <laughs> The far wall was covered with three huge collages, Marilyn Monroe, Michael Jackson, and Elvis. I always sat by Elvis, but I never drank the tea. I was certain they were trying to drug me. They had misspelt cabbage on the menu so that you could order garbage rolls or garbage salad. <laughs> or just very reasonably request that there be no garbage in your noodles today. The water tasted foul, so I was parched by the time I made it back to the office and drew this out into another ten minutes in the kitchen, drinking from inexplicably small, coned paper cups. <laughs> My initial task was to transcribe an interview with an utter arsehole who had found success through a network of hair salons. Even though the producers were happy with each take, he wanted to go again and again. This time serious. This time with a smile. This time with his hair in a ponytail. This time with his trophy wife on his lap, etc. etc. So I ended up transcribing the same prepared answers to the same stunningly dull questions about the business of hair, and I began to wonder what it was I was really doing there. Eating lunch alone, avoiding eye contact in all possible corridors, Stealing rolls of toilet paper from the marble bathrooms Rolling home on the subway in a kind of daze Without the energy or desire to even read a book Looking for nothing and finding, of course, even less My second assignment concerned the versatility of barbecue cuisine All day I watched video of meat cooking Establishing shot of ribs on grill Close-up of braised steak, etc etc. For lunch, I made ramen I had brought with me on the train and ate standing at the table in a break room in which there were no chairs. By the end of the day, I was so hungry for meat that I went with a co-worker to Tony Roma's in Glendale <laughs> and, and spent too large a proportion of my scant bank balance on a half rack of ribs. The co-worker was dressed like he didn't know how to operate a button. In a city dominated by what other people think, he ate his meal with a reassuring solipsism. Quickly, Noisily, using the whole stack of extra napkins he had requested with his order. When he was done, he warned me that I shouldn't go to the massage parlor across the street because he had been there and was certain it was a brothel. All of a sudden, at the end of his treatment, the masseuse had followed him into the shower and, what do you know, jerked him off. I didn't stop her because I didn't want to be rude. The next day at work, I was assigned to the Strictly Sex Show with Dr. Drew and tasked with transcribing eight hours of penis augmentation surgery. Interior, tight shot on penis, scalpel slices, skin, etc., etc. But like all the others, even that day ended and I went home and I got drunk and I dutifully began again. The next job was in Burbank, too far from any of the train stations, so I borrowed my roommate's 93 Saab. The radio did not work. Something leaked green fluid when parked. The temperature needle swung into the danger zone whenever the car idled for more than a couple of minutes, which was inconvenient because although the job was only eight miles away, the drive took around 90 minutes in stop-start traffic. 
I worked the night shift for Tommy Hilfiger's reality show in which a contestant would win the opportunity to design and manage a line of homewares for Mr. Hilfiger's worldwide fashion concern. I transcribed hours of interviews with the would-be designers, each utterly convinced that this was it, their moment. I started at 6.30pm and worked in a small second-floor room with three others. When I arrived, the room always smelt like burnt popcorn. By the time we all left at 6am, it smelt like a farm. After a few weeks, one of the guys, the strangest, who lived with his parents in the valley and rotated three off-white shirts with three pairs of brown pants... He, I realise I'm wearing brown pants. Um, <laughs> he told us it was his birthday, so at 3am we went to the Denny's down the street for lunch. It was full of prostitutes. I ate a hamburger. <laughs> I only saw Tommy Hilfiger once. He was standing in the middle of the room wearing a bright red sweater that was way too small for him. He definitely looked at me. It would be an exaggeration to say we met. There was a runner on the show. We were about the same age. She would make the lewdest comments and gestures whenever we saw each other in the hallways. At lunch, she would ask me if my penis was as big as the supreme burrito she was eating. <laughs> If I had a dick, she would say, it would be a supreme. And she held the burrito to her crotch. She, she was a tiny woman, to the extent that I imagined her having trouble persuading Six Flags employees to let her ride the roller coasters. Still, she was always telling me how big her dick would be if she had one. I thought it was inevitable that we would sleep together. That's... <laughs> As her lunchtime comments became more intense, even though I was so desperately lonely, I began to dread the idea. I found myself resigned to its inevitability, but <laughs> resigned with a kind of anticipation. Then, when it came down to it, we just didn't. We were both drunk at the rap party for the show. She looked at me and left with her friend, and that was that. I read the Craigslist misconnections. Then I read the casual encounters. I had sex with women I met in the 7-Eleven at the end of the street. I had sex with my Tony Roma co-worker's roommate, and he was pissed. I kept having sex with her because I didn't know what else to do. She asked me if I was always this arrogant. I told her I had a girlfriend in San Francisco, which was not true. I had persuaded myself I was in love with someone in San Francisco, and I imagined her better life. And in that life, she had sex with other people, so I did the same. It was awful. I couldn't do it anymore. Then my co-worker told me he hadn't seen his roommate for weeks and then she showed up with a new boyfriend and they left the apartment strewn with the apparatus for cooking meth and absent of all the cash my co-worker kept in the drawer underneath his t-shirts that January saw the heaviest rain for a decade the local news cycled through images of flooded carports in Anaheim distraught residents, their floating SUVs one morning, I woke to thousands of ants moving as, as a train from a crack in the window siding to somewhere beneath my bed, the tickle of their legs on my neck, the horror. <laughs> During one of the frequent storm bulletins, I realized that the Channel 7 weatherman had been a Saturday morning children's TV presenter 15 years ago in England. His teeth were whiter now. His tan, considerably more orange, and the areas of, his, and areas of his face seemed to have been bolstered with compressed air, the way one would inflate a sagging tire. Whenever I drove anywhere, people told me to be careful of the rain, like I had not grown up on an island in the North Atlantic, frequently... <laughs> 
frequently ridiculed by Americans as a place where it never doesn't rain. Later, of course, I learned that the rare precipitation mixed with leaked oil made the asphalt slick, and it was this I was being warned of. Still, it was easier, maybe necessary then, for me to believe that nobody understood where I came from. Because if nobody understood where I came from, then nobody could possibly know where it was I might be going. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Richard. All right, our final reader is Paula Younger. Paula Younger teaches writing the short story at Lighthouse. Her writing has appeared in such journals as Harper Collins' ebook Forty Stories, The Rattling Wall, The Nervous Breakdown, and Best New Writing. Uh, she received her MFA from the University of Virginia Creative Writing Program, where she was a Henry Hoynes Fellow and the fiction editor for Meridian. She, uh, she was also a Bronx Writers Center Fellow, even though her writing had nothing to do with New York, and, even, and she even had a stint working at a literary agency where she helped represent paranormal romance with titles like I Thirst for You and Undead and Unwed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's welcome Paula Younger. You know you're jealous about those titles. <laughs> so um, I teach the short story here at Lighthouse, and I figured in the spirit of workshop that I'd be kind of reading a new short story that I'm working on. It's magical realism. It's called Resurrecting Grandma. And like Richard, I wasn't quite sure how to structure it, so I just decided to do the very last section of my story because I write very long stories. And so I'm going to just give you a little synopsis, and I am angry at Richard that I have to follow him because, damn, that was good. (laughs) (laughs) But my short story, um, Resurrecting Grandma, it starts with the main character. She just had a baby. She has strep throat, and she's really sick and feels like she can't take care of her baby. And in a moment of weakness, she calls for her dead mother. And so, to her surprise, her dead mother comes back. The kind of negative of it is she comes back the way she had died. Um, She had died in a car accident. She's missing an eye. She's got a gory head wound. And so, and throughout the story, the son is growing up with kind of the grandmother popping in at various moments when the narrator calls for her, when she feels like she needs help. And so, the, the son is growing up kind of seeing his grandma, thinking this is normal. And so there are a lot of episodes where things are kind of not quite going right, and not surprisingly, the narrator's husband isn't too happy that this dead mother-in-law keeps coming back. (laughs) And so at this very last section, the son, Jake, is in preschool. He's three years old, and the narrator's pregnant with her second child. So here we go with resurrecting grandma. And I drank wine, which made my mouth very dry. Okay. (laughs) Um, I lost mom on grandparents' day at my son's preschool. Neil told me not to take her. He said, do you know how people react if they see her? You don't even take her to the grocery store. But Jake kept whining and begging and said he wanted his grandma there. As so many of Jake's pickups and drop-offs, Mom had sat in the car and stared longingly at the front door of Montview Preschool. I wanted her to be a normal grandma, if only for one day, and I wanted Jake to officially have his grandma, if only for an afternoon. Grandparents' Day taught me the living are prejudiced against the dead. We don't like the ugliness. We want the dead to be an idealized version of themselves. That's why we love the idea of angels, a better and more beautiful version of us, as if death erases everything instead of intensifies it. We want to forget death hurts. What mom taught me is that death is ugly and hard. 
the body fights against the end of life. At the final moment, the body spasms, trying to hang on. Mom, Jake, and I piled into my SUV and headed to Montview. Fortunately, Neil had to work that day, another, another new big deal emerging. Mom sat in the passenger seat, hands in her lap. I said, put on your seatbelt. It's only a five-minute drive. You died outside of our driveway in seconds. I'm already dead. Jake said, buckle up, Grandma. She listened to her grandson. Maybe it was knowing we'd be among other people. Maybe it was the close quarters of the SUV. But her smell became palpable. Instead of rotting, it was a body beyond decay. The worst mix of spoiled vegetables, meat, and milk. But Jake didn't seem to notice. I wondered what having his dead grandmother around was doing to his sense of smell. Was it being destroyed at three years old? In the parking lot, I hesitated with my hands on the steering wheel. It was impossible to hide her death. She wore an eye patch and a large brim hat to draw attention away from her face. Her pale skin was now green and rubbery. When we approached the school, even her walk was slower, more of a lurching stumble. Her aerosol support flats flopped off in the back. I wondered if my love for her and my need had blinded me to how much each visit was physically costing her. Jake grabbed her hand. I want to tell you a question, Grandma. You'll meet Miss Linda and Miss Julie. I want to show you my classroom and cubby. He walked, back, he walked between us and asked us to swing him. I worried Mom's arm would fall off or at least bend awkwardly. <laughs> I picked him up and held him on my hip to protect my pregnant belly. Montview Preschool was in a charming, historic, red brick building from the 1870s. It felt homey and traditional at the same time. Ms. Davidson, the head of the school, greeted the families and grandparents as they walked through the front door. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Welcome to Montview. Don't you all look marvelous today? She started to say something to us, but stopped. <laughs> Mom stared straight ahead. I couldn't read her expression behind her eye patch, but I recognized her mouth set in a tight line, her determination to move straight ahead. We were in trouble. I grabbed Mom's hand, hoping she could help us through it. Most people talked in the halls or in the big room and didn't notice us. But every once in a while, someone glanced at the wide-brimmed hat lighting and whispered, Jake said, Grandma, let's go to my classroom. I introduced Mom to Miss Linda and Miss Julie. I liked them, and they seemed to like us. Miss Julie often told me that Jake had a wicked sense of humor and was her favorite student, although she shouldn't have favorites. They talked to Mom as if she were alive. They told her about the play-based education, what a great painter Jake was, and what incredible motor skills he had on the playground. Mom smiled and nodded, pretending she didn't notice that the other grandparents and families who'd been looking at the children's artwork were now looking at her. <laughs> then Gavin's mother, a teacher of four-year-olds at Montview, left the room. She must have been the one who grabbed the head of the school. Within five minutes, Ms. Davidson was in the room with a security guard who I didn't even know the school had and asked us to leave the premises. Mom looked up as a board. I'm dead. What are you going to do? A few murmurs. The devil. Unnatural. Ms. Davidson said, I will not have my school tainted with the dirty undead. My mother's not dirty. Oh, no? Then I saw my mom the way everyone else did. Throughout her returns, I kept losing pieces of who she had been. Her casual pants and burgundy top were disheveled with ragged seams. The return visits had a hard force that was tough on clothes and shoes. Her smell became more apparent. Her hat looked ridiculous. Jake kicked Ms. Davidson's shin. Don't talk to Grandma like that. I'll put you in time out. <laughs> she, lifted, she lifted him up and put him on a chair. Jake spit in her face. I was proud and ashamed. 
He punched at Ms. Davidson, more out, of, more out of fighting spirit than actually trying to hit her. I won't let you be mean to Grandma. Ms. Davidson said, I want this out of my school. I wasn't sure she meant Mom, Jake, or the situation. I said, we have just as much right to be here as anyone else does. I had spent my life pleasing people, but I was ready to take on the entire school for my son and mom. My baby flopped and punched in my stomach. She was ready to defend our family on her, too. Someone called the police. Fifteen minutes later, Officer Hansen stared at mom sitting in Jake's classroom. Family photographs of the different children hung behind her like a mobile. Butterflies pasted on the wall. He held the cuffs but seemed afraid to put them on. Then he shrugged and said, I'm not sure what law is being broken. Ms. Davidson touched mom's arm, trespassing. Mom glared, don't touch me, and now it's threatening me. I said, my mother is not an it. Officer Hansen escorted us off school grounds. He was kind, even gentlemanly to mom. He was older, with white wispy eyebrows and white hair curling out of his ears. He seemed retirement age, if not beyond. Perhaps he was worried about his upcoming death and hoped that, it would, that, and hoped that when it was his time, people would be more gracious and understanding. <laughs> he walked us to my car. He helped mom into her seat. She was having a hard time bending her knees. She was younger than he was, but dead. I suppose that made her stiffer. <laughs> he said, I'm sorry about your death, ma'am. I would have let you stay if it was my choice. He came over to the driver's side window and motioned for me to roll it down. I just wanted to make sure you made it safe to your car. Didn't want anything to happen to the little one or the one in the oven. I rubbed my belly. My little girl kicked and bounced behind him in front of the school. A group of people stood as if trying to decide what they should do. An indecisive mob. At home that night, Neil listened to over 20 angry voicemails. He said, great, we're going to have to find a new school now. They can't kick him out. We pay the year's tuition. He spit in the face of the head of the school. He's three, and he was defending his grandma. His dead grandma? I can't believe you took her. I just wanted us to be normal. He deserves to have his grandma. In our 10 years together, Neil had never looked at me with pity before. If they don't kick him out, no one will invite him on playdates or talk to you. Kids don't care. They'll still play with him. They'll think it's cool his grandmother came back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> we suffered through the rest of the year at Montview. Ms. Davidson glared at us in the morning. Whenever he passed through the door, Jake said to me, there's the mean lady, and I hope she heard. When my daughter was born, she pressed against my body in the sling at each pick-up and drop-off, and I regretted that my mom would never know her. Not really. That was the most painful thing. After Grandparents' Day, Mom waited in our family room. She fingered our family pictures, looking at all the events she had missed the past 10 years. Now that I knew I could get her back by calling for her, she couldn't ignore me. Mothers can't turn off that instinct. I knew that as Jake's mom, and for my little girl who would arrive in three months, I had to let Mom rest. I would always miss her, but there was something worse than death. Dragging the person you love around until they fell into pieces. I kneeled in front of Jake, smooth as hair. You're my brave, tough kid, right? He nodded. I love that you defend a grandma, but it's time for us to say goodbye to her. Will she be back this year? He didn't have a hand on yesterday, today, months, or weeks from now. He often said, well, we go there this morning when it was evening. I like that he didn't have a concept of time yet. Maybe loss wouldn't be as painful for him. No, my love, we're saying bye-bye to Grandma. She's dead. It's time to let her rest. I'll fight death. He punched the air. <laughs> I wish we could, and I kissed his hair. It smelled fresh and like childhood. I wanted to hold my face over his hair and keep breathing it in. I hugged Mom and kissed her rubbery cheek. Her dead body squished in my arms. I tried to give her my warmth and my love, an apology for dragging her around. 
But Jake wouldn't say goodbye. He stomped to the ground. I don't want her to go. Neil came out of the kitchen and kissed Mom's cheek. Thank you for your help. I'm sorry it's been so hard. We do love you. I squeezed his hand. Jake cried, snot and spit oozed down his face. I won't let you take Grandma. I won't let you. I loved his drama and honesty. I already dreaded the day when he would learn to hide his feelings. I didn't realize what wanting my mother cost Jake. Watching him mourn and miss her made it worse for me. She was no longer my loss. She was our joint loss. I had taught him at three about death, what it means to lose someone essential to your life, the feeling of losing your safety net and that the world can reject the person you love most. I didn't learn that lesson until I was 25. I hated that I did that to my beautiful son, but at least I could spare my daughter the heartbreak. Now that Jake is six and his sister is three, still, sometimes late at night, I hear him calling for my mother. Thank you. Thanks, Paula. So thank you for coming. Uh, we hope to see you again. This year is going to be uh, an incredible year. Um, and let's eat some cupcakes. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.